enough about our friend Stephen. Um, I'm glad we could have a whole discourse about that again. I'm Calvin with the Twin Geeks here with David. How are you, David? Uh, I'm doing pretty good today. Are you inspired by the new cinema of 2020-2021? Uh, have I seen any new movies this year? Possibly not. No, I, I mean, I, I, are we counting Judas as a movie from this year or last year? It was up for this yes, year's Oscars, yes. so is it is it <laughs> a last year movie? I don't know. The lines have been drawn. Um, the Oscars have finished. Uh, and having not seen any of the movies, how was your experience watching a ceremony about the movies you haven't seen? You know, um, there's a lot of complaints about the ceremony. It's it's gotten the worst returns for any Oscars. Uh, Down to fifty eight percent from last yeah, year. Drop below ten million viewers, I think, for the first time ever. But I thought the ceremony was quite nice. It's um, we had Soderbergh, Soderbergh on board along with a few other producers, and they radically changed the show. I I would say like the format of it has kind of flipped on its head. Like we began. Rather than with actors, we began with a screenplay because it thought of that as like the basis of a movie and, and how a movie begins in an, its inception. So we get people like uh, Emerald Fennell and um, uh, what's his name? Like Florian Zeller uh, out there right away. Uh, people who you know, are behind the scenes, like the average movie watcher doesn't specifically know the person that writes every script. So uh, I think both good to get those things out there and frustrating for a general audience who's just there to see big names in a room. Um, for me, I, I I really like the direction of it. I like a moving camera. I like how it pans around and comes back to the envelope. It feels like a Soderbergh film in so many ways. That, that would be, a, I think that'd be an interesting motif to continue as well, to bring in a like director yeah. to, like, like, a, like a big name director who's part of the industry to oversee the production of the show each time. And I think that would give it a different like visual flair and intrigue each year. Um, I like that idea better than like a new host. Oh, I do all too. The time. I think that the cutting of the host, which has been a kind of controversial decision over the past couple of years for me is, is definitely a, a net positive. Um, you know, this year I found it very comfortable. I didn't think about it. Did you? No, I, I didn't think about it at all. Again, like stuff like that and like having the song spread throughout and everything is is what drags the show down yeah. generally like it's brilliant already decision to brilliant sorry brilliant yep. decision to place those songs ahead of the ceremony this year that even made the pre-show almost watchable mm -hmm. almost yeah like and i understand that the oscars is for like two different audiences there's there's us the people who actually saw the movies and are interested in seeing what what awards are going to be given out in kind of a very succinct and you know easily to, to get through manner and then there are the people the general audience who generally doesn't care as much about movies or at least doesn't you know watch them as uh, fervently as we do and they're there to see what movies get recognized to kind of see what they should go see you know that's and that's a lot of what the oscars is is it's a big advertising campaign for these films and they usually do another round after um you know they, they get their awards and everything a big victory lap and that's when they get more of their their box office pull and so that's why so much is put into the oscars campaigning to begin with because it really is just a giant advertising fest but one of the big issues that still plagues the show is its inability to move from you know uh cable i think yeah uh there's nothing like going back and watching a three-hour show with you know like a, a indulgence of commercials 
uh, after like cutting yourself away from that to just be reminded how awful it is. You might even think of going back and rewatching the old ones, but they're so damn long as shows that it's kind of impractical to even revisit them. Um, I feel like this slicker format by Soderbergh, uh, just moving right through the presenters and, uh, but still giving people stage time. People weren't like played off. Like a, we got Vinterberg up there with another round doing four minutes on uh, what it really meant to him. And, you know, the most impactful story of the year and not every movie is going to hit like that. But if you allow that time, the ones that do, you're actually going to get those stories. So. Mm-hmm. But, but sometimes, you know, the trade off of that is that for others, it can be tedious people. Like there's a reason yes. that before this, they had cutoff times for speeches. And, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm of two minds with that one, and I can see it going either way. We got uh, five I, minutes on the octopus. <laughs> yeah, unnecessary. I, I, uh, what I think, I think we just need, need to make a ground rule in saying that the ceremony can't be longer than the longest film nominated. I should be able to watch any film, you know, I, I, or I should be able to watch the Oscars in less time than it takes for me to watch one of the films that's nominated. Yeah, you know, short as, as we're a, talking feature films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing because. As, as an Advent movie watcher, I'm constantly thinking about things, you know, in life in terms of runtime. How many movies can I get this activity done in, you know? Yeah. You know, that's that's my metric for time measurement is about a two hour to two and a half hour time frame. Last time I came to visit, you said this is a really long runtime. When are you going home? I, which I found surprising. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I talked about like, uh, it's, it's about... Um, eh, a movie and a half, you know, yeah. uh, to, to get to you from um, here. <laughs> we'll stay there for uh, one war and peace, and then we're out for the, <laughs> for the rest of the day. Exactly. I think I think we should measure everything in, in films. But I think yeah, it's they... a good metric. I, I do think that now that films are so accessible, there is a trade-off where everything's on Netflix or Hulu or something, and you're looking at the show like, do I really want to watch these shows? I mean, I, do I need advice on what to watch? Because it takes less effort for me to click through onto any of these movies right now than it technically does to watch their show about them. I think that the change in, in technology and what uh, you know the general population watches and how they consume media is a bigger contributor to the Oscars you know, downfall over the years than anything having to do with the ceremony overall. <laughs> yeah. Um, you look at, say, the video game awards that have been growing exponentially. They have like 80 million viewers now. So what do you do when that show is, I mean, does it become a trailer show? They had like two trailers. Uh, we had the two Puerto Rican musicals, uh, In the Heights and West Side Story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, the, those are apt descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, I feel vaguely excited about now just because it doesn't look like it's throwing the whole thing away. I, I know we're tired of remakes, uh, but I thought the West Side Story looked slightly more watchable than In the Heights, just personally. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm more interested uh, personally in In the Heights because it's a sure. it's new. You know, it's a story that... <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's an adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's first uh, Broadway success, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that we have not seen in theaters yet before. I, I, watching the West Side Story trailer, if you can call it that. Um, <laughs> You're not calling it a trailer. Uh, it, I mean, what did it tell me about the movie? That it's like, a like gritty... Very little. Gritty <laughs> yeah, it's it's re- gritty, revision. but also colorful, you know, trying to be West Side Story still. I don't know. It, it doesn't look like very promising still. Like it, it reminds me a lot of that still, that one still we got of the film yep. like last year. I'm like, mm. That still looks accurate now. Uh, yeah. 
which which doesn't inspire much enthusiasm here. So I don't know what Spielberg's going to be able to get out of it, if anything. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in it solely as a prospect of Spielberg is directing a musical, and he hasn't done that before. And so I think you, that's... Do you think but, a, more movie trailers would fix it? Do people even care about movie trailers the way they care uh, about video game trailers? I don't think they do. I think video game trailers are so central to their marketing. Whereas my friends who watch movies, they avoid the trailers. They they don't sit in the movie theater until the trailers are done. At our true, press that's... screenings, they don't show trailers. I don't even interact with trailers and movies. I watch video game trailers right away. I, right. I'm running to them. Oh, I think that's a that's a very interesting topic to bring up as well because that does open up a whole conversation about movie trailer culture, how it's evolved, and the idea of people avoiding certain ones because they've become too descriptive over time. They, are, they yeah. reveal too much. Uh, and I think it's also a matter of what movies are being advertised, you know, because if you got a sneak peek at, like, you know, say... Uh, what would matter, Dune, right now? Yeah, yeah, maybe Dune. I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to gauge how much the the general population, what they're interested in beyond superhero movies right now um, what if you had like dune french dispatch and like annette and all these huge movies that were coming out the next year like wouldn't you want to watch the ceremony just for that but um, i, mean, I don't know if to i say would. because well because the problem is is that with the internet they're immediately going to be on there afterwards it's like the same thing with like the super bowl you know the super yeah. bowl premieres a lot of ads or it, when they put it in front of the new star wars movie or something there was like oh there's a new trailer for this in front of this movie uh it's it's going to be up immediately afterwards and so oh. there, it's there's not a whole lot of incentive to go out of your way to see this for like because again like all you have to do is wait 20 minutes and it's going to be there i mean video game trailers so rarely a spoiler for the thing either it's cg'd and not the actual product or it's a mechanical expression of how you play the game which will be so different from how you play it personally so i, I understand the difference and why people gravitate to one i do I, I will say i do think that new movie trailers would be better than 50 ford commercials there were um, a lot oh, yeah. we watched with our european friends only to realize how often we see car commercials in the u.s Car, car commercials, pharmaceutical commercials, which always blows their minds. Everyone's always very confused by the U.S.'s excessive amount of, you know, pharmaceutical commercials, pill pushers and such. I was fascinated by the question if we have gun commercials. I think we came to the conclusion we have commercials for <laughs> uh, stores that carry guns, like Dick's Sporting Goods and uh, Cabela's. Cabela's. But I don't believe that we do have gun commercials. I just thought that was maybe, an maybe like locals, question. like local advertisements for gun shows yeah. is probably like as as far as it gets. There must be some kind of like regulation on it. Same thing with like how you can't sell, you know, or you can't show cigarettes, you know, in advertising mm -hmm. anymore. You can't, you know, you don't see ads for Marlboros or anything like that. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, there's, yeah, but it it should be like this big celebration of advertising, like where culture meets like anticipation of movies, but. It feels like a end of year event to a year that we've wanted to be over for five, six months. I mean, for me, yeah. I've been doing awards since November. <laughs> I, I'm this is also really definitely an awkward year yeah. uh, for for movies in general and certainly for the celebration. I, I saw a lot point out that, you know, it was uh, like only Frances McDormand in her acceptance speech even talked about like getting back to theaters and such, you know, which <laughs> should true. have been kind of the rallying message. Oh, that I guess that reminds me as well the theme of the ceremony was supposed to be like going back to the movies or like you're watching a movie. 
yeah like that I think was, it was, was supposed to be like a celebration of movies like as a format right it was it was like they they were like they were saying that the show was supposed to be like a movie something mm-hmm. vague like that and i mean it didn't feel that way well sort of like all. you get you come into union station and it feels like soderbergh's directing regina king around to a stage and like there are these moments like a with the bong and his interpreter where he teleports to the other side of the screen. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a few like movie like moments where that's just not something that would happen on a stage, but it's sure when you have like pre-recorded moments like that, then yeah. Then yeah. But uh, as a whole ceremony, I didn't necessarily feel like it was I like a movie, but, but yeah. I don't need it to be either. Like the thing I want from the Oscar ceremony is I want efficiency. I want, I want quickness. I want you to, you know, get through things and not bog it down with too much extra crap. Which, but at the same time, I'm like, is it is the extra crap the thing that the general viewers want? Like, they want all these, you know, uh, mid-show song numbers and stuff like that? Because I saw complaints that, you know, having that up front was, like, detrimental. But really? I certainly did. Yeah, I certainly didn't think so. I don't, I don't want to, you know, take a five-minute break in the middle of the show to hear a song that, you know, uh, might win an Oscar or not. It's, it's not important. I, I think the other thing was that I saw is that they need to show more clips of the movies um, which i i do agree with to an extent because that's what gets people who haven't seen the movies interested in going and seeing the movies it seemed unclear this them. time right like they were showing clips for some things but not others i was very pleasantly surprised finally we got clips of all the animated films together uh and that that showed a huge contrast once i saw wolf walkers next to soul i was like Maybe I over-reviewed Soul a little bit, you know, like yeah. maybe Wolfwalkers was the premier animation event. Obviously, it was going to Soul there. Uh, how do you feel about results? Uh, do you feel okay about what they chose? Uh, a few questionable ones, I believe. There, there's only one really, really questionable and undeserving I, one. I, I disagree. Felt. I think there's probably uh, more than that. <laughs> well, okay. I thought Unless you were going to disagree same with one. what I was going to say, and we're, we're going to have to duke it out here. Unless it's the same one, which I don't think it is. Well, I I might agree with uh, your other ones, depending on what they are. But the, but there's at least one ex- unexcusable victory they, they gave out. The Groundhog Day short film. <laughs> Would you agree? Uh, that was not the one I had in mind, but potentially. Uh, it's one that like recreates like a, a vision of the George Floyd thing. And it's about a black boy who wakes up every day and trying to avoid police violence. I'm like, oh, maybe don't recreate these things. That's all I'm asking. Yeah, it's, that's, that's, that's sticky. Mm, that does not sound good. But, Even me as the uh, Groundhog Day guy. I'm like, I'm not fucking watching your movie recreating that. <laughs> I, it's too fucking close. I don't want you to profit off it. Fuck off Netflix. The biggest, the biggest Groundhog Day fan in the world doesn't want you to do this. Just yeah. think about that. It's fucked, man. I don't want to watch George Floyd's recreation. And you see the screen caps with the black guy laying on the ground, his head bleeding out. I'm like, oh, my God. I don't want that to win. I don't like the one about the shooting either. The one about parents being responsible for their kids and, and school shootings or whatever. I, uh, man, it just made me so uncomfortable. So uh, fuck off, Netflix. Uh, what did you have? Uh, possibly another Netflix? <laughs> yes, uh, actually. Uh, I think... <laughs> I think Netflix is the the biggest perpetuator of sins this year, and that's uh, Mank. Mank. Uh, I'll just Mank, go ahead and Mank, say it Mank. again. Mank. Uh, anything with Mank, but in particular, it sounds giving, good to say. Mank. 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 That's the only thing that sounds good about it. Yeah. Um, the the fact that it won cinematography is insulting. Yeah. Right? 
is is just awful. Uh, why? Because they shot it in black and white. It's awful. Uh, the the cinematography is one of the worst things about the movie. It, it looks ugly. You literally can't like decipher anything in it. Uh, I I gave a huge section of it to my review of how like absolutely awful the the cinematography is, and it's from a, a first time cinematographer. You know, I I don't know. Like I, I guess good for him for having a, a victory. I hope he gets you know more opportunities because of this. But he didn't frankly deserve it. Uh, you know. Yeah. It, uh, I, I had put Nomadland on my uh, bingo card or, or whatever we're calling it. Uh, and Not again, even a film with cinematography you really appreciated. No, right? no. You had problems I, with Nomadland cinematography yeah, too. I did. I, clear I, it would I, win. Yeah, but, but I thought it would win obviously because, ooh, you know, big widescreen shots. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I obviously I filled out my card with, you know, putting on my dumb Academy voter brain. <laughs> uh, it was a... And that that one seemed obvious that that Nomadland would get it. I guess I should have got, thought about Mank too because ooh, black and white is is also, you know, a, a dumb Academy decision to go with too. And they did, it, it, and it was it's one of the most egregious wins uh, I could think of in, in recent history. Maybe only outdone by Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I think the one thing about it is it didn't convert from color to black and white, and he created his own technique for going and black and white first which has been fucking done i mean people have shot in black and white before it's not that exciting thanks yeah i mean that's literally how we started like (laughs) that's where it comes from and and you can't do the basic thing but everyone's like it's so new he did some new monochrome thing to make modern black and white look okay it it doesn't doesn't oh it doesn't it literally like it's it's indecipherable it's so bad i don't want to make this the mank rant podcast though Um, what else is it for let's be honest yeah i guess so this is your safe space <laughs> to talk about your problems with mank and what it's done to you yeah i i don't know i i wish it was honestly i wish mank was worse in some ways because like yeah i i just don't have enough feelings for it to hate like it's it's such a bland and, and uninspiring movie and like 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 for so many people it was just like fincher made this like this is so ugh. All right. <laughs> and not only uh, did it win cinematography, but production design, which it might have deserved slightly more. But uh, may, maybe. There's not. probably other movies. I, I put that one down because also, like, you know, the Academy's just like, oh, look, they recreated 1930s Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know. And it's easy to believe that they did that when the cinematography is so muddled that it's hard to make out if the details are at all convincing. What was your uh, header like? muddled maladroit musings or something yeah <laughs> it was a good header i forget the exact wording but i like the uh triple m but i, I like you the alliteration what can i say like you the alliteration uh there's uh other good results though i feel mostly secure about everyone else who won i thought nomadland was a sure thing to kind of clinch their awards it didn't dominate quite how i thought it would only three for that while make got two so i mean like there's not a huge disparity in awards one it just won the more significant ones yeah best best picture best director and best actress and uh Great. pretty significant in those last two uh francis mcdormand uh jumped up to being having three oscars now well, uh, she's uh, it. chloe Zhao, the first woman of color to ever win uh directing oscar o- is- only the second woman even yeah. at, at all period Absolutely. and the only other one being I think it was 2005 uh Catherine Bigelow run one for the Hurt Locker hmm. which um, which is incredible uh and I think it, it was deserved I think uh Chloe Zhao did a great job directing 
in um, Nomadland. Uh, it's, it'll be interesting seeing her go from, from this to Marvel movies and... Okay. Uh, we're going to get that tagline for the next year, aren't we? The, and, uh, and a Universal Monsters project. She's making a draft <laughs> of a movie after that. Uh, and and, they're, and they, now they get us plaster all the advertising with Oscar winner Chloe Sal. <laughs> and we also got... Um, even Minari uh, came through with uh, one, one, a, one win for you, was, you <laughs> Young, which is okay. Uh, I wanted to see it up there. I'm so. kicking myself because I put it down for best picture because I thought that that they kind of would lean that way. And, seemed like uh, an outside chance. Ah, yeah, it was it or Nomadland, and Nomadland seemed to have the most momentum behind it. But I was like, they don't usually go with that though. <laughs> they're usually a little subversive. They're not. They're not always that obvious. They're usually slightly less obvious. So I went with Minari instead, and. If I if I had picked Nomadland like I knew it was gonna win, then uh, I would have won our our competition there. I would have taken a whole pot, but instead I had to split it. They didn't disappoint me in the ways that they usually would. In that trial, didn't win anything. I mean, they didn't just hand it to Sorkin because they understood he's a you know more prominent screenwriter than than uh, what's her name. Um, then this is going great. Uh, 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 don't worry, we have the power of editing to cut Emerald, out all this. Emerald Fennel. Uh, emerald fennel yeah it's emerald fennel you know you know emerald fennel from uh, exactly i said uh, that Killing i said Eve. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah she's pretty new so it's nice to see that sorkin you know that that prestige doesn't overwhelm someone who wrote from tv and is just coming in we're starting to see that international click of the academy coming through for projects like minari and parasite especially last year I mean, this, these are big differences. And we see the directing branch actually making a big difference too. They went with Vinterberg in their own awards. And then finally we got another round here, which I really love to see it. I, I, that's my feel good moment of the show. It, for it sure. was the pretty obvious one for international feature, just because yeah. it was, I think it was the only one that uh, had any kind of like real push, real conversation around it from, from this uh, pack, but, but one not, not, it was not undeserving. Yeah, collective maybe could have gotten a little bit more buzz, but docs rarely win in international or foreign. So I was I was happy to see the mole agent in there. I liked it. Yeah. Okay, I'll just cut that bit. Snip, snip, snip. <laughs> I did like that they rearranged some of the show. It was very unpredictable for me what was going to happen when because they did best director in the actual middle of the show started with screenwriting rather than actors. Then best picture suddenly. Emerging. Oh yeah, that was. <laughs> a decision uh they really banked they really banked on on chadwick boseman winning best actor and then they just oh that's that's the biggest uh calamity of this show everyone talking about how you think so yeah how joaquin phoenix just absolutely like snubbed the end of the ceremony by just kind of throwing away uh anthony hopkins name there and his win and just ending the show very suddenly even though uh was it olivia coleman was uh set to accept his oscar allegedly he was supposed to hand off for olivia coleman because anthony hopkins god bless him he's the oldest academy winner if he wants to stay in wales and do some golf or whatever i'm i'm cool with that i, I did read just recently that he was prepared to zoom in and he would have liked to to accept yeah. but uh the, the academy wouldn't let him which I, I i agree with that decision i, I think that you know no need to overcomplicate it and you know when people haven't shown up before to accept their oscar they have somebody else come and do it they had satellite offices right like they had they had florian zelder in france who was able to zoom zoom in but uh hopkins didn't want to go to the satellites i mean they're they weren't nearby whales who cares i mean they should have just let him do it 
Yeah. Oldest, oldest uh, to ever win Oscar, though, which is pretty fantastic. He just, I believe I, I read that he took it from Henry Fonda, who won for yeah. on, on Golden Pond in 81, I think. Yeah, it's it's interesting to look back. You see movies like on Golden Pond or something. It's like maybe these movies aren't so bad, you know. Uh, maybe on this Golden slate Pond's of okay. movie. It's okay. I want to see it like at my cabin and while I'm just chilling. That would be a good cabin movies. watch movie, yeah. I think. <laughs> Definitely has that vibe to it. I like Henry Fonda and, and Catherine Hepburn's good. It's just it's but a it's an okay movie. You look at like a full slate of Oscars from regular years; they're not that impressive. I mean, there are years where like Slumdog Millionaire won, and it's like, what was it really up against? You know, I mean, well, it's important to remember that the Oscars have never been representative <laughs> of the best movies. Not even since the first ceremony in 1927. It doesn't matter no. that Sunrise won the best artistic feature that year. You know, there are other films that didn't get recognized from that same, you know, era, era, uh, period. And, you know, and there's a whole slate of international films that don't get recognized every year all the time. Sometimes you get a little bit of recognition, but it's never, ever, ever reflective <laughs> of the, the best, you know, that, that can be that year. You know, what for for God's sake, I think like Apocalypse Now and all that jazz lost best picture to fucking Kramer versus Kramer in 1979, <laughs> which is just mediocre awful. movie. Yeah, it's 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 one of the worst decisions I've seen. <laughs> it is a terrible decision. Uh, this did bring me back to my piece I wrote last year about the first Academy Awards, which went to Wings, despite having Sunrise, as you mentioned. In well, they the, had they had the two. Yeah, they had two different awards for like quote unquote best picture. The best artistic category went away like immediately after. And then, you know, whatever the best, most entertaining film, I think, or whatever they called it at the time, evolved into the best picture category. Really, there were like two best picture winners in 1927. What uh, really brought me back to like reflect on this is that the show itself felt reflective of that first show in the way I described it in that piece, just like this ballroom of a hotel with you know a few hundred people in there a very inclusive hollywood party or very exclusive party excuse me whereas this one seemed completely inclusive where it had people from all over the world just in this tiny room in that same setting it felt like it went back to how it began in some way the yeah how the ceremony has evolved is very interesting uh you know for like for example they didn't start broadcasting until like 1955 56 or so uh, on television Otherwise, it was all like radio broadcasts prior, which I don't think even started until the 30s. Yeah, definitely not the first one. That no. was hard to write. But then I looked at the second Academy Awards. I wanted to continue it this year. And there's just no info. I mean, uh, of course, that first one's very well documented down to like the menu, which I describe in there. Um, everything... It's a very well researched piece. Thank you very much. Um, it's just hard to find that for the second one because there's the movies aren't as big for one. Like there's no wings the second time um their selection was a little bit rougher it was like i think that was was that one all quiet on the western front or did they do broadway melody that year i can't it was broadway melody the second yeah which was the first sound film you know the first uh you know big sound film that came out at the time doesn't necessarily hold up as well today but um yeah i I think it's an interesting to track that because again the oscars have always been about awarding the industry and the players within and you know making a big press event of it and you know publication as opposed to seeking out the actual best films (laughs) and awarding them it's 
it's it's really not about that. It's great whenever you do see them or that, but you can't approach the Oscars like it is a prestigious event of merit. It's a prestigious event of glamour. It's it's very representative of of Hollywood itself, I think. And if you view it through that lens, then you can you know get in on the the entertaining aspect of it. Uh, don't don't take it as seriously as you know what does or doesn't deserve to win because ultimately it's a reflection of the times, the people involved, uh, the social climate, and, and all manner of factors, which I think uh, can sometimes be more interesting than you know whatever the best film of the year really is, and ultimately whatever the best film of the year is will change because you know history uh, uh, you know evolves over time. Film you know what we you know, see as great films will change, you know, things get reevaluated, changed over time. What yeah. was great in 1957 may not be today. And we might find something else from that same year that was, you know, even greater. Uh, the films themselves don't change, but we do. And, and, you know, we view things differently as, as we evolve and go on. In 15 years, everyone will catch up to me and realize that Kelly Reichardt was the actual only director of 2020 and that the rest <laughs> should have burned at the stake. First Cow was the only great movie last year. I'm yeah, sorry. there there is. was okay. Let's be honest. There, there were two movies. There there was lots of uh, uh, movies this uh, last year that I guess could have get gotten recognized, but yeah. mostly like if you look at the slate, like and even I'm here sitting, you know, from what briefly I did see, I'm like Nomadland is probably the most deserving, but that's not to say that Nomadland was the greatest movie of this year or even really in the running it's i thought it was a movie though we, we need yeah. to recognize chloe Zhao before she get, goes and does the marvel shit so she wouldn't come back and win one after that is all i'm saying uh yeah i guess you could bounce back i don't know the, the whole uh n- network right now this idea of like you know indie directors who do really good on these small budget projects then get lots of money these these kind of like i do one for myself then i do one for them and and, and so on it can work but, uh, you know, like, like just knowing that there's two like kind of in, insipid blockbusters on the horizon for uh, is, is not very encouraging. Like, I don't know if there's, there's anything else in the pipeline. I'm sure so, there's going to be something after those. But, uh... Hopefully. But I mean, at the same time, like, you know, if, if she keeps making money off of them, if that's <laughs> if that's the best thing. <laughs> I guarantee Kelly Reichardt's not going to go to a Mar- Marvel movie, though. Um, <laughs> And that's why she's not represented in this academy like this, because not marketable. So, yeah, you make uh, the best movie of the year. It doesn't mean it's the most watchable movie of the year. There, there's there's a whole series of you know backstage politics that go on and into the Oscars and who can get recognized and you know and a lot of it is on the producers end to push these films to get recognized and such. So again, it's it's important to understand all that to appreciate what the Oscars is because it's not what it necessarily purports to be no and Um, that's that's fine i think that's ultimately fine you know it doesn't have to be a a bastion of you know uh, american movie culture (laughs) well nomadland also dominated all the awards this season i mean it went through the critic circuit it went through the producers guild it went through even the independent spirit awards my guys didn't take first cow they went with nomadland so i think it has been dominant even our Seattle critics two years in a row we had Parasite then Nomadland so uh, it's not like we're not reflecting the same values as the Oscars and ultimately the other thing to to recognize as well is that uh, so much more of it is about exposure and recognition than it is like you know I think First Cow is a great example of this because its distribution got 
all fucked up because right. of the um um you know the, the pandemic hitting and whatnot didn't get a really proper release um you know a, a 24 like june july yeah a24 didn't put a lot of advertising push behind it as much as something else whereas if you take nomadland for an example they're out here sending out fucking you know uh sunscreens you know windshields to, <laughs> to you and such it's no surprise that it got so much word of mouth and it, it was a easily accessible on hulu so a dope like me could go and watch it you know without having to try so hard you know like i i saw nomadland i didn't see first cow so how how is that a surprise that it's going to get more recognition and more prestige? We will have to do first cow eventually, or I'm quitting the show. Um, <laughs> that's that's fair. Eventually is a great uh, you know timeline for me because I can in person would be good. Um, I'd like to watch it with you, so that would be cool. Sure, uh, we should get together and do that sometime. There's a uh, yeah, but there is this feeling of a. Uh, the year was so long and the only films really featured in the awards came out from November on. Uh, so it is that truncated season again, especially a year like last year where it just stretched and stretched. I mean, if Sonic the Hedgehog came out in December, maybe we'd be having a different conversation, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the other thing. It's all about when these films come out, how much push is given behind them and the the recognition. Because the other thing is that, and we see this all the time in these like anonymous Hollywood reporter articles and stuff, is that the voters don't watch half the movies, you know, no. most of the time. They don't give a shit. Uh, they don't take this with any kind of duty like us, you know, re- regular schmoes do who all go out of their way to cram on in you know, all the best picture nominees in the last week. Right. Or at least most of us, there's just people like me who are just like, whatever yeah. <laughs> uh, i will i will guess based on what i see because my my votes aren't actually contributing to you know the result here i'm not a member of the academy well here's the frustrating thing i watched every movie mentioned and you still beat me on the ballot i mean i yeah. still i didn't come close but i voted in another awards ballot where i would have won if i matched my vote so very frustrating week for me overall uh the one I didn't get money in, I I nearly won. And uh, here where I put the money in, uh, you know, blow out. Just just blow out. Well, we all came so close. We were like a point it away. Was, it was a very close. Like everyone was in with like one or two points of each other. And I think that just goes to show how, not only how predictable the Oscars can be, but right. particularly this year and, and how very overtly advertised a lot of the, the wins would be. And again, you can like, I think that's part of the fun here is like tracking the trajectory of the Academy and seeing what they go for and seeing when they do subvert sometimes like last year when, you know, when they went with Parasite for best director and, you know, best international film and best picture, which was literally unprecedented and, you know, surprised most everyone. I think I voted for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I keep buying into that idea that... (laughs) the Academy just likes to award films that are about Hollywood. And I think yeah. consistently, like they're showing that that's, that's not, not anymore. Always no. the case. Not, not really. Uh, I, I think I said the last movie about Hollywood win best picture was the artist. The artist. Yeah. Which was also technically an international feature, I guess, but it was a co-production for me. It would have been last year. I thought for sure. 1917 would win. I was, utterly convinced to a man that i thought 1917 would be a blowout because it was like well it's technically boring but also a very good war movie and uh seemed to have social currency and a lot of great things going on and great cinematography and movement and it seemed like a spectacle to watch on the big screen i thought i thought for sure 1917 would be a blowout last year i'm always wrong so (laughs) 
this is this is the most gambling I'll usually ever do. By the way, next year, like I I would be willing to put in a little bit more money next year just because we do this between friends, and mm-hmm. so I know like losing it, it's not going to be that big a deal. Like oh, I gave fifty bucks to to my buddy or whatever. It's not a big deal to me. Yeah, I'd like you guys way. split the pot anyway. We had two winners, so uh, no huge deal there. Yeah, maybe we'll see. A lot see of money if- lost. So. maybe we'll see i don't know I'm, I'm gonna try and start convincing everyone to increase it every year until we're doing you know three thousand dollar you know buy-ins interesting <laughs> how real the, money on the table when the people win they want to increase the buy-ins i see how this works <laughs> what would you bet on the future of mortal Kombat? like as an oscar contender yeah well yes <laughs> and also just as a series that goes four more and Three or oh, four more inches. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to go on a limb and say it doesn't have any chance at the 2022 Oscars. I'm just going to throw that out now. You can quote me on it uh, this time next year. Uh, as for a series, my my first instinct to say it would be to say it doesn't have much legs. But considering how it made more for HBO, you know, it got more eyeballs than even Kong did which was a pretty big success for them considering a pandemic at all. Uh, it's probably got some potential. And I, I would also just argue that even if it wasn't financially successful, the series has enough social currency that in another, you know, eight to 10 years, they'd think about remaking it again anyway, because people like Mortal Kombat and, you know, they're, you know, Hollywood's always looking for, you know, IPs on hand to exploit, uh, even if they've done it three times before with middling success. Yeah, um, Samba TV, which is like the tracking agency for HBO, recorded that it had even greater returns than uh, Kong just on the service, but it also way overshot at the box office. Uh, I believe it was expected to do about what was it like 10 million or something and it went to like what was it 30 or 40 million opening weekend so way overperformed both places uh i really liked it in a way that i also feel like it's a bad movie i feel like my voice is going up and i can't maintain my tone um, i feel like mortal kombat is okay <laughs> oh no calvin's flown away he had too much helium in his body um they they don't really get into like the the high techno mortal Kombat song till the ending so i had to detract five points otherwise 10 out of 10 uh, for me uh it was my first relationship with like an adult media in some way i remember like going to the store and just like uh nonchalantly it was like that rare time where my parents like pick out a game and i i just handed off mortal Kombat to uh the big m rating on there so i wandered off and did something else while my parents went to check out just trying to be as oblivious as i could acting like it was no event at all uh i'm sure they didn't even see the rating they ended up buying it um when we got home they're like what the hell is this so uh, (laughs) it was always my card to play after my parents would question if i was old enough for another media i was like remember that time i was five and you got me mortal kombat 2 on the genesis and i turned out fine right and then uh (laughs) you know three years later i'm there in the checkout aisle i turned out fine right with like a heroin needle sticking in my arm so uh thanks to my parents for uh, supporting <laughs> my uh, hobbies uh, Mortal combat is is a direct link to hard drugs kids remember that it was very cool though like on the playground uh kids were like which version you got and then like this nerdy kid's like oh i i got the super nintendo and i'm like oh you, you you're not old enough for blood like like kids need to be like old enough for like blood and maturity right to be cool in the 90s so 
you're only as cool as you are edgy in the 1990s. So the Genesis version ruled supreme. I'm a huge fan of those early combat games. Uh, and this one goes through like the original cast from the first game, the 1992 game, that really said about having a rating system in the first place for games. It came out like coordinated with Dune, uh, or Doom, sorry. And they were both like this big push to get rating systems implemented in video games uh, because people weren't making stuff like this before. I mean, graphical fidelity wasn't such that you could really see characters bleeding in a, in a really profound way. So um, once we started getting these 2D, 3D models in our games, it became obvious that there needed to be a rating board. Uh, so it was a pretty interesting thing, but a lot of Mortal Kombat is that gimmick. Um, those original 90s movies for me didn't play into that very much. They're they're very cartoony and flashy. They're fun to watch, but I don't think they amount to the same feeling of gravity and like bone crunching, you know, Mortal Kombatness that the games always have. Like early on, there's a fatality where um, Sub-Zero throws Jax off a, a big building and it, his back goes down, it crunches, he loses his arms. And it's like, okay, this is cool. It's like grounded in heaviness and uh, a feeling of the games so in some way i support it but very badly made movie i mean the action shots are so quick and deliberate and it's just so boring there aren't that many fights i think you'd really want a lot more fights than this movie has um when it is doing action it's a basic martial arts movie i i respect it in a very basic way that, that i'm like that was fun to watch once i want to watch the second one now um, I, I always love when a uh, a video game adaptation or video game adjacent movie comes out because your reviews are always so interesting <laughs> and insightful. C coming from a background of doing game reviews prior, yeah. you get this very rich history, and it's always great to have you come on. And if it's not you, it's someone like Bro who, you know, also does you know video games and has a rich insight as well, and you know, just very you know helps contextualize and add more to it than just reviewing these always very bland movies they're never going to be good so i want to speak to it as a person coming from like a long history of playing 25 mortal kombat games in my life you know like i've played every version of mortal kombat in the main series i've played every spinoff like i mean i'm primed for this movie this is a movie yeah. for me that explicitly <laughs> references all these games and my whole history with them and that's the big thing i've heard about this movie too is that there is no value in this movie if you don't know anything about Mortal Kombat. If you don't yeah. care about Mortal Kombat as a game series, then this film is is absolutely useless. I mean, it's not an important game series. I mean, there's not a reason you should be familiar with the whole run of Mortal Kombat. Like, the last three games have been significantly better than the last decade before them. There, there was, like, this huge gap. There's, like, Mortal Kombat 1 through 3, and then, like, this long gap where they're just mediocre fighter games. And then suddenly these new games have like deep stories and you know, they have like x-ray vision, which shows bones crunching when you have fatalities and shit and it looks and feels cool. Again, it feels cutting edge and it feels like shocking to watch in a way that they had trouble maintaining once they went to 3d. So uh, really just a huge gap in Mortal Kombat's relevance to the culture. I'm glad that now that it is relevant again, they brought it back. Yeah. So if you like Mortal Kombat games, I guess uh, check out this movie. And if you don't, <laughs> probably don't either way maybe don't check out this movie but uh if yeah. you really really like mortal kombat games and just fan service directly to you is of interest then this will do that for you i believe 
Sure. I, I don't think it matters too much if it's a long show, does okay. it? Okay. Yeah. If, if, if you don't care. Let's see. I got to find it again. Here it is. If you just do a quick thing on the dock. Yeah. Yeah. I, I won't take too long. All right. Uh, so this this doc this week is probably one you haven't heard of, not a lot of people have heard of, and very particular to my interests. Uh, I'm, I'm going back into uh, history this time, but no Nazis. Um, this one, it's a uh, 2018 PBS documentary in a series they have called American Experience, uh, called Into the Amazon. Uh, now, Calvin, let me ask you, how much do you know about Teddy Roosevelt? Not so much, unfortunately. I need to watch the Ken Burns Roosevelt's. Yeah, the Roosevelt's, which which I talked about before, very great documentary series. Um, and of course, because Teddy Roosevelt in particular uh, is a very interesting guy, very interesting historical figure, and by, uh, f- by far the most badass president we've ever had. Dude was a baller. He was a cowboy uh, at one point before he became president. Uh, he traveled the world and, you know, like went game hunting in, in Africa at different points, climbed the, the pyramids when he was a kid, uh, you know, busted up monopolies while he was president. Uh, and, you know, when, you know, being so popular, he made his own party uh later on uh, after not winning uh, the presidential uh, or, or the Republican nominee to, to fight for, for the presidential uh uh, opportunity for a third term an unprecedented third term at that time uh which of course famously at one point he was shot during yeah. in the chest and uh not only survived but pulled the bullet out and proceeded to give his hour-long speech you know still after <laughs> the getting badass. shot. yeah fucking awesome anyway he didn't win that presidential bid uh and so he was very sad about it and so he decided the best way to chase away the presidential lost blues was to go explore an uncharted river you know in south america that was a tributary off of the amazon it was one of the last places in the world that had not yet been thoroughly explored so he met up with uh south america's foremost explorer uh colonel rondon who had you know been in that area like one time before he he you know hailed as like a hero by the uh, Brazilian people, the government there, he set up um, miles and miles and miles of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, I'm blanking, I'm blanking on the word here. It's the, the, the wire, the, the telegraph lines. Okay. That's what it is. Uh, anyway. <laughs> and so he, they, they had this joint mission to go into the Amazon and um, chart this river, which was uh, called the river of doubt. It's very dangerous. It's very uh, like no, nobody had been before. It was um, uh, all sorts of dangerous rapids along the way. Of course, you have all of the animals in the Amazon, you know, which are very deadly. Uh, and not to mention the the native peoples who lived in that area, who uh, some of whom were, were cannibalistic tribes. It's a uh, lot of unknowns. Who had never who had never encountered with you know the the other you know the people before. <laughs> Uh, and and it was a very grueling mission, like the, the most you can think, you know, like the, the most treacherous scenarios you can think of all the way. Roosevelt almost died at one point, <laughs> oh, uh, c- considered committing suicide, so he didn't hold the mission back. Uh, they lost three people along the way. One, you know, one drowned. Uh, one 
killed another of the expedition you know to you know because he was trying to steal food and they <laughs> they left that guy they abandoned him in in the forest um and it's just this amazing uh story of you know like this man versus nature kind of you know expedition with the 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 ex-president of the united states and the foremost explorer of the 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 amazon area and you know all these different struggles you could think of that they have along the way and it's it's really well told in this documentary you know they have they have some cinematic aspects to it these you know slight recreations where they employ actors and such to fill in the blanks they have actual footage from the expedition they shot at certain points you know and they they fill in the blanks with the various historians and uh, like descendants like uh teddy roosevelt's grandson is there to, to kind of provide some insight and stuff and uh, more more than the documentary itself, I'm just very moved by the story. I find it fascinating, like this kind of ultimate real life adventure with all the kind of, you know, exciting, you know, aspects you can think. There's a great book I would recommend to go with it. That's called The River of Doubt, which I which I read through, and it's just uh, I think such a fascinating, you know, and, and uh, thrilling story. Uh, but in, into the Amazon, the PBS documentary I think is a great first exposure to it. If you don't know about this kind of crazy like like side story about roosevelt's career that happened after his presidency and such it just adds to his his legacy this absolutely insane adventurous you know life that he led all of my context for roosevelt is from the literature of the time which you don't realize now how reverential people used to be to the president and uh, how there used to be a space for that kind of feeling in the country no longer roosevelt was roosevelt was one of the ones who kind of earned those, those accolades yeah. and enjoyment, like his popularity was, was justified, not just because he was such a charismatic person, but because he did actually do so many great things. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not to say that he, you know, didn't have his issues as well. You know, he wasn't perfect by any means, certainly a, you know, a bit of a product of his time with his racism towards native Americans and such as one example, but uh, truly like if you go through American history and look at the, all of the presidents, there's a reason they put him up on, on Mount Rushmore. And it's not just because he was friends with the, you know, the, the, you know, the, the main head of it and whatnot. Like he really, you know, he, he consistently ranks up there when you look at all of his policy and impact on, on the country and such. Would you say he was friends with the other heads on Mount Rushmore? Uh, seeing as they, they all lived, uh, in a time before he he was born except maybe lincoln i think uh no spiritual friends would, would you say maybe so they're all cavorting up in uh presidential heaven right now swapping stories about all the ways they help to improve our country i bet they're all talking about north by northwest up there maybe maybe <laughs> speaking of um glowing times for the country um, we have a movie about Vietnam. Yeah. Let's take a break and come back <laughs> with the glowing celebration of America with uh, Forrest Gump. Come. Um, this Welcome. ties in. Yeah, 
this ties in better with our uh, Oscar conversation, I guess, since that was the inception behind it. But also there's some historical connection there, I guess, a little bit, a little bit and about the uh, history. We're looking at the uh, Clinton years, so also Mortal Kombat era. We, we got a few tie-ins here. Yeah, I'm sure it all makes sense to our <laughs> listeners out there. They know, they know the intent. They can see the, the trajectory here. Um, Forrest Gump, uh, big in the Clinton years, uh, that kind of optimism wasn't really fashionable, I believe. There was a lot of cynicism in that culture. It was much cooler just not to care about anything. Like, that's what all the grunge and everything was about, right? Like, a, we were just a apathetic generation. And this was the last call for the baby boomers to celebrate themselves. It's definitely a baby boomer movie. It's the most baby boomer movie, I believe. Uh, why, why did we pick this? Is this why we picked this? Because we knew it was kind of emblematic of the time, particularly the kind of the Oscars celebration stuff and whatnot. And uh, well, at least for me, it was a film I knew I needed to go back and reevaluate because it's a very easy film to like, I think, if you don't yeah. care that much about movies or you're not like that aware of them to begin with. It's it's very easy to see why it was so popular, why it's so enduring and stuff. But uh, once you go back with a little bit more critical eyes, uh, the, the the flaws come through a lot more and you can see how... There are a lot of them. How how, yeah. how nothing the movie is, it feels like sometimes, but also how contrived it, it can be. Some of the elements which haven't aged well, like are, are definitely politically outdated i i would say uh and, and not necessarily with with Forrest's character in particular though that's an a- aspect of the film as well that might not play as well for modern viewers but um just a lot of it's it's like contemporary commentary and it's reflection on the era and such yeah it's it's a it's a bit of a an interesting artifact we'll call it it's a bit of a turkey now. Um, yeah. It's I, I didn't realize until I went back also like a year ago. I was like, this is some shit, man. Like, I my memories are pretty warm toward it. They're based around, well, the cultural event of when it came out, having that big uh, double jewel album of uh, Creedence Clearwater songs and, you know, like the so airplane. Just like, it's, it's cool. I mean. Uh, I, I will say the soundtrack is like overbearing standalone. as it is. As overbearing as it is at times, and also how literal it is at times. Like sometimes it's just <laughs> it's like, oh, literal. we'll match this moment. Like, like there's a moment where 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 Robin Wright, like she's walking out at one point, and they they literally have the doors. Is um, <laughs> yeah. oh, what's what, what song is it? Um, uh, I think it's Soul Soul Kitchen. No, it's a different one. They have yeah. like five door songs in the movie, and anyway, they play the part where it says like you know oh it's it's lover madly that's right because mm-hmm. it's like don't you love her when she's walking out the door and she's literally <laughs> opening the door yeah. as they play that line and it's like jesus christ you guys have no fucking subtlety jesus they literally put in fortunate sun as helicopters were rising over the that's, horizon that's like, in vietnam the most that's like every cheesy vietnam movie though like you can't avoid yeah, that you've got you know it's just a whole Springfields for what it's worth yeah all of them all along the watchtower plays on that they bring out all the hits for the vietnam section and it and i'm of two mind you know i'm like yeah come on you know you can't do anything different but also like these songs are fire these are they, songs. they're all good songs i mean that's a whole good era of <laughs> music for the country uh, so that's the, the the film gets points just by proxy like the songs it, the, are good the way yeah, it's I, used I, I kinda, though, does it yeah i don't know like the thing here, here's the thing is that there's so much that's like really pedestrian and bland and lame about the movie and just flat out bad in some ways yeah but i don't hate it like I, I think part of it is just like i'm i'm indoctrinated by the movie in some ways like its social mm-hmm. prevalence is just like 
managed to wrap itself around me and and like induce like force a kind of uh un you know uh, undeniable charm to it like i'm still like i never like was bored necessarily watching it although it is overly long it's a very long movie uh, it's almost like two and a half hours and you know just for for so much that's in the movie nothing really happens like there, there, no. there's no substance to it and but there's so much like it goes through like like several decades of events and it's just like and it's rushing through them like there's no time to breathe through any of the scenes it's like we're on from one thing to the next to the next because force has got to do a bajillion different things and be at every important cultural moment of the 1960s throughout the movie so you know you got to rush through every moment like you, you can't really sit there and soak in like particularly if, if it's like something's supposed to be impactful like vietnam section of the movie it's just like now nah, we just got to be in there long enough to meet bubba and lieutenant dan and then we got to get ambushed and then we got to get out of there and then we're playing ping pong already we're already there it's funny because like well forrest gump we should go over that part you mentioned that he's just not much of a character he's he's so thinly drawn around um you would say very well, he's kind of an idiot. I mean, he's kind uh, of a bumbling, you know, he kind of like happens upon all his luck. And it's so, like so American, it's like American exceptionalism as a birthright that he like happens, you know, it's a celebration of a war that we lost. I, I don't know how else to frame this movie. And in, in, in a way kind of, but I think there's so much more. Like, I think like centering on the Vietnam aspect is like, like, like the thing that I, I think the film isn't like, concerned enough with any one thing to really call it a celebration of the war like it's i think it's really just like everything is like a footnote it feels like i don't like. know what the movie is then i mean i i struggle to really well it's complex because there are likable things i want to say that tom hanks is just likable like in this fumbling part in a way that you know like sean penn i am sam just not not likable in the way that tom hanks can be you, n- you never go full retard no <laughs> yeah and i he doesn't i mean he he keeps it to like a, a very likable presentation of this character. Um, I I feel like Zemeckis really works with him in a, in a certain way. I mean, I think they have like, you know, like Castaway later, which I think is a more significant, greater Better film movie. for me. Better yeah. movie for sure. Maybe not more significant because this, this really controlled like a lot of the conversation for a long time. Yeah. Um, I think that's the interesting how much it's just, it's absolutely dominated pop culture in so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I feel like it's been like crammed down our our, our throats, uh, and it's unavoidable. And like I said, I think that's part of the reason why it's managed to have like a stranglehold. And like I can't outright hate it because there's yeah. there's li- likable things. It's like it's not overtly offending, you know. Like, like, even in its bad stretches, it's like it's not. It's very unendurable. nice. It's yeah, it's like like fine, very like you know unassuming movie in in so many ways but like i said you know i'm I'm happy to also dogpile on it and talk about what doesn't work you know (laughs) like let's see like just going back to the beginning like watching the film and watching open up i'm like this is a terrible opening (laughs) this this uh it really is structure this narrative structure of just having him on a bench uh (laughs) and then he just starts explaining his life story to this random stranger that's really bad that's really contrived (laughs) It, it it just doesn't make sense as an introduction to a movie like he's unprompted and it, it just feels like a very forced way to set up bookends to the, to the story like you might as well just start um just start with his 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 childhood story which again like 
so much of it is irrelevant and there's mm -hmm. a lot of parts <laughs> i could just go down a list of uh the things that forest does that contribute to history that are really stupid <laughs> just really bad writing um it's all very contrived just... and it doesn't really make sense why all of it's in there you want to well, go through and, and, and some of no... yeah let's 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 start with the beginning um <laughs> okay forest forest as a child has scoliosis he has he has back problems and he and he can't walk very well so he needs braces mm -hmm. and then very at some point <laughs> later on he doesn't anymore yeah that's true he runs away and he breaks free of his braces for seemingly no reason and <laughs> uh, they they weren't in like like they were no more hindrance to his characters of, of the physical condition than his his mental you know capabilities mental faculties which they you know set up as him being kind of a simpleton which also doesn't really affect things too much it just it mm. kind of gives him i don't know like a, a weird charm or ignorance to the the problems of the world it's it's not really helpful in any way uh let's see while, while he's also a child he runs into elvis and teaches him how to shake his hips yeah he's credited for a lot of things in this movie yeah yeah that that one is i think one of the the worst ones because it's like an actual physical impact like it's a literal yeah, like re re you know like changing of history and it takes it, away like the influence of black culture on elvis and all of that too and, and lots yeah. of things and it's just and it's dumb and it's, it's just for dumb. a dumb joke and that means nothing and there's so many of those like throughout it's like I think, I, everything is just meant to be kind of like a dumb joke where it's like oh look Forrest <laughs> is actually responsible for the shit happens bumper sticker yeah or <laughs> writing imagine i think most crucially that that's a terrible oh my god thing. Uh, yeah that that dumb exchange like i and, and and that's something else. I'm gonna be all over the place. Just talking. Yeah. I can't I can't stick narratively here because there's just so much. We're gonna bounce back and forth. But I think that that was the moment that really highlighted because one of the big things with the movie that was always kind of advertised or like talked about is there's, there's this big leap forward in you know technology. Like you know the big one of the big appeals of the movie is that we could now insert characters into historical footage and stuff. Like you see him meet JFK and stuff. <laughs> right. and Nixon. He's on the Dick Cavett show with you know John Lennon, and that's where that scene happens. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that makes sense. That was like, that's the appeal. This is the, the point in Robert Zemeckis's career where he's just becoming like technically interested in things and doesn't give a shit about like storytelling or characters or anything else anymore. Really like, doesn't. Like he's he's entirely like this is the slow trajectory downwards in which now you know we're we're at like the very bottom of <laughs> yeah, yeah we've hit bottom yeah and so this is this is like kind of the beginning of that era would you say like polar express is like the point of no return yeah after that, yeah that's yeah. that's probably the which was like just right after this too right um but like so that that's a kind of been a big celebration of the film it's like oh it's this technological leap which was happening in a lot of 90s films at the time and you look at it today and it's just fucking awful like, we have like <laughs> we have deep fakes on youtube that look like the real people it's hard for us to look back at these inserts with any affection i think I think I think when I saw it at a younger age, uh, I ignorantly, I'm pretty sure, was under the impression that they just inserted Tom Hanks into scenes and gave him like dialogue that you know that fit the context of the footage they were already showing. Like I don't think I was aware that they literally manipulated the the historical persons yeah. and and dubbed them. I don't think I was mm -hmm. aware of that at the time, but it was so obvious and egregious now. 
particularly in the John Lennon scene because it's done oh, in a close-up as well. It's just, it looks and sounds awful. <laughs> and it's so dumb. It's just for dumb jokes. <laughs> like the scene with, with JFK where he's just like, oh, he's got to pee. He, I think he said he has to pee. Like, what? <laughs> well, I also went back and I haven't gotten very far, but before I went to bed, I started the uh, Groom novel, the guy who wrote the original mm-hmm. story of Forrest Gump which for me, extremely different. I had never approached the story before. Um, I think the biggest difference so far is just Jenny in that it's a, just like a character that he's kind of fond of, but she's not like a main presence. That's all really manufactured by this film in a way I didn't understand. It's it's really interesting. We, we looked up after watching the movie okay. a bit about the You book might know more because I'm like four chapters in. Well, we didn't, well, obviously we didn't read the book, but we read yeah, yeah. about the differences and whatnot. And the book was not very popular for one thing, no. which is interesting as to why it was picked for an adaptation. I think it sold like somewhere between 10 and 30,000 copies initially, which is like nothing. Well, let's be honest. It's interesting that this was a very popular movie too. I mean, it's yeah. kind of nothing now. I mean, if it weren't Zemeckis, it weren't Hanks, you know, it didn't have this music. I, It's just a, a combination of things that makes it more popular than that book. It's just, it, it's, it feels like such a pandering piece to the lowest common denominator right. and that's the thing is that like because it's it is it's just like a highlight reel of like the 1960s like you know he's just jumping through all these historical events hey look here he's hanging out in communist china remember communist china remember <laughs> chairman mao that was there you know remember vietnam and it's just and, and it feels you know it's like it's like a precursor to, to ready player one it's the it baby boomer ready player one that's what that's it so is true. I, I guess Groom right afterwards wanted to have a reset on it. So um, I guess he optioned um, to only get a percentage of the profits. He made very little money off this movie. Effectively, he later sued and essentially sold them his second book. So all the money he made off Forrest Gump was really from selling them the second book as a script. Then um, he had sold it to them around September 9th, 2001. Uh, then September 11th happened. <laughs> This whole book was about Forrest Gump being responsible for all the bad things that happened in America. It was going to be a complete contrast. It was about going to be about the movie ruining his life and him becoming apathetic and learning, you know, what it really meant that all these terrible things happened. That's and kind why of he was involved. I know, like but meta textual thing, particularly because supposedly in the book, yeah. he's a much more crass character. He is. Um, you know, he he uses a lot of profanity i know there's parts in it where like he spends like like he he goes to like you know and and hooks up with like uh prostitutes at one point in the book and other things like that i mean Um, his character is literally a descendant of the kkk in both book and movie yeah yeah he's in in the movie too but it's played off like a cheeky thing where he's like it's funny i don't get it like that's supposed to be a joke (laughs) that he's a descendant of nathan uh, bedford forest but that matters in the book because he is is, i will say it it is I did kind of chuckle seeing Tom Hanks like dressed like Nathan Bedford Forrest and, <laughs> okay. and putting on a, a, a hood and such. Yeah. Like the the image of that, the juxtaposition of wholesome Mister Rogers esque Tom Hanks, you know, portraying a member like the the founder of the KKK. Oh, I think he's so insipid in the you know in the movie, but I think it's because it's Tom Hanks. I don't think you could frame Tom Hanks as that kind of crass. Yeah, it, it wouldn't work. Uh, I believe the author said he imagined like John Goodman when writing the that book because he's also sense, like yeah. a, a big, large guy. Like he plays high school football. Yeah, you know, and that's what gets him like the scholarship to begin with. Um, but yeah, uh, Tom, Tom Hanks—he's very like unoffending mostly throughout the film, 
And then I think at the end, when he's required to play some more emotional scenes, I get a bit more out of him. Like yeah. I'm a bit, I'm a bit moved by the ending in the the movie there, just, just a little. Um, and it's it's all like due to Hanks and him delivering the performance. Uh, if he weren't such a like charming actor, you know, and, and very good at performance, this this movie wouldn't have as much going for it. <laughs> I think it's a top case where performance does matter. Like in our evaluation here, if it weren't Hanks, I don't think anything would work. Um, I will I will say there's one thing. One thing I think is unabashedly great about the movie, and that's Gary Sinise. Oh, love, he is good, yeah. I love Gary yeah. Sinise here. I think him as Lieutenant Dan, like, I think he's giving a genuine and convincing performance. I think he's giving a nuanced performance. Maybe like he's the only one who does. His, I don't know. His character has dimension, you know? Yeah. Like, this idea that he's, you know, he, he had this purpose in life that he was seeking, you know, like, he was going to die in, in war, you know, in valor and carry on this, like, family tradition. You know, he had this idea of destiny. It was taken away from him. And not only was it taken away from him, now he he has no prospects in life because he's lost his legs you know, yeah. in the Vietnam War, which uh, I should point out is the other like the technical innovation in the movie that actually holds up, like the erasure of Gary Sinise's legs throughout. It's very yeah. well done still. But, uh, you know, and, and throughout the moments throughout the movie where he's like, he's having to deal with this, this, uh, you know, the sense of loss in life and like being crippled and taken away you know, all this opportunity, like, and I think the character arc he has, and like, at first, how he just throws that all at Forrest and blames him because he saved his life. But he's also like the only person left because because there's a bit of commentary in there as well about how the military just completely abandoned like, oh, yeah. the Vietnam veterans and stuff like, you know, and he's living on the streets effectively. So I think that is like the one component of the film that actually like really works and I'm taken with. And a lot of it is due to Gary Sinise's terrific performance. And it makes me think like, why wasn't he better? Why, why didn't we get more movies with, you know, Gary Sinise in them in these great supporting roles like this? I think he could have been a truly like transcendent character actor. I know, agree. A like lot of... Lieutenant Dan is the one thing I really love. I'm a Bubba fan as well, but uh... Bubba's character. So nothing though. He's he literally just, nothing. He's he literally funny, just spouts off about shrimp. Yeah. It's I mean, great. I... You get like a whole two minutes of him listing every kind of shrimp. That's, <laughs> that's the highlight of the film. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. This isn't a but, film that I love, but I, I think no. uh, between Bubba and Lieutenant Dan, I think there's some strong secondary I, characters. There. I can see again, that's like the movie is so insipid that like, it's like dumb stuff like that can be the <laughs> highlight for someone. Or it's just like, oh, this is so dumb. I love it. You know, uh, it, it can be something like that. But yeah, uh, I think going back to what you're saying earlier, one of the things that definitely doesn't work is the forced attempt to create a romantic angle. Oh, with, Jenny um, is so terrible. Jenny. Like everything she wants to do, she's a failure at, and she gets no, you know, it, it's someone that's really trying in life, uh, cast against Forrest, you know, nonchalant idiocy, and everything good happens to him, but nothing good ever happens for her. She just, what? and, and there's terrible. an undercurrent of like, I think there's a terrible undercurrent of like misogyny that the film oh, yeah. has against her. Like, like it, the film revels in torturing her in some ways. Just like, loves oh, yeah, her. she's, she's like, raped by her dad constantly is a okay. child and it's kind of just like played off very early like you know she she's like sexually exploited you know at multiple times she you know has to deal with all these shitty boyfriends and, and stuff and worst and the of movie, all worst of all she has to play blowing in the wind at a strip club which is not a strip <laughs> club song honestly it's it's not well and that's the thing it's like the movie like revels like because she's trying to be a real artist but she's like yeah. playing you know a, a bob dylan song 
naked and and you know the film revels and like making fun of her for that yeah and it's, it's just awful. it's like oh and and the, the problem is that the movie's so bloated with other shit it doesn't actually have time to flesh out her character in any way because she just keeps like popping up at random points and like so you have this one like this very quick scene where it's like oh she's doing drugs and now she's gonna kill herself while leonard skinner is playing okay yeah. and and then we're, we're back out of that and there's this the weird reversal after like the scene where she you know rejects force for trying to save her from the you know the hecklers at the club and then the next time we see her is literally at like the the vietnam rally where she right. comes running out and she embraces force and it's like didn't you just like totally like hate him like three scenes ago yeah she doesn't make sense in the movie at all and and, the, uh, and i think the worst thing particularly because of how the movie when the movie came out is that she dies of aids mm. at the end of the movie in yeah. 1994 the height of the aids crisis they, they kill her off you know, they just AIDS. hate her and, so and the much. implication the implication is that she got aid by having, you know, this horrible life of like just sleeping around, like this sleazy lifestyle that she lived that they showcase throughout the film, and and the implication is that's where she got it from, and it's it's awful, like like you know, yeah. implication there, and particularly like this is literally a year after Tom Hanks won an Oscar for portraying a man with AIDS. That's in Philadelphia. right. He, he did the rare back to back too. That's very rare for the Academy giving it twice um th there was just love in there for hanks at that moment i mean how, how could you deny him the win and i think yeah. that's why they both won and, and i think yeah that extends to this film winning six oscars that year that's so the, many for this honestly be, best picture best actor best director like lots of major awards you know all, all the way down what was it uh, like the pulp fiction year there must have been other there options is, there is year. there is definitely better films let's actually let's take a peek here at some of the films that came out in 1994 which is the year i was born by the way definitely a pulp um, fiction year shawshank um, yeah shawshank, shawshank redemption yeah. was nominated that year i believe as well pretty good ed wood came out that year which we talked about before it wasn't nominated but it, i mean i think that one should have that that was the best movie of 1994 possibly but there, there does seem to be something where like Pulp Fiction would still be respected today if that had won uh, in a way that yeah. this never could be. Um, it, yeah, it, I think won, it, it won screenplay for Tarantino that year, I, I recall, but not picture. And I think most people would argue today that it was the film that should have won Best Picture. And, and I, mean, I agree with you. Like if we look back, we would say, yeah, that's probably right. Looks like we also had Chunking Express. Um, yeah. Dumb and Dumber. Uh, Three colors, three colors. Uh, three colors, red. red yeah. Yep. Uh, Clerks. Uh, I don't know. I don't think Clerks should have won Best Picture. Three colors, white as well. Uh, any of those could have been uh, better. I, I would have gone with Dumb and Dumber over uh, Forrest <laughs> Gump myself. Personally, I actually would have, but I don't know that I would have. But oh, Hudsucker um... proxy was that year? Uh... Yeah, Hudsucker was pretty good as well. I like Hudsucker uh, better. This I think it's held up. We we did an episode on Hudsucker, I think, didn't we? Uh, Hoop Dreams, one of the best documentaries of the 90s. Actually, I'd say the actual best documentary of the 90s came out that year. So, so yeah, it, it just goes to show as well that, you know, it's uh, while this film has definitely had cultural staying power, uh, I think reevaluating it definitely showcases how undeserving it would be of any kind of prestige or accolades, let alone a, a, a best picture award. I remember Ebert gave it to uh, Hoop Dreams that year. That was that was well respected. I could have gone for that. I'm wondering but what yeah. won the the palm that year. Oh, 
Probably Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, I think it might be right. Yeah, we Pulp did Fiction. do a Pulp okay. Fiction Pulp Fiction won. did win. That's right. That's historically a big thing that Pulp Fiction won that year. Yeah, and that makes sense because you know, again, like as we, <laughs> yeah. as we see here, like comparatively, yeah, probably deserve to. I'm sad that we've gotten to this before many of these movies. We did do Ed Wood and uh, Hudsucker, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, so we're not totally red, but we we went into this one. We picked this one specifically because we knew we were gonna shit all over it. Uh, and like I said, I needed to reevaluate this. I my my perception of the movie was a lot more positive, uh, but I knew, like you know, particularly having grown since then, that it was gonna come out a lot worse. But uh, I'm still surprised. I don't hate it. Uh, yeah. Again, like for all my, for all my ranting and raving here, uh, which, which has been quite you know. <laughs> quite a bit i've done a lot of uh it's been know, good shooting on the movie here I, I don't i don't hate it uh you know it's it's all right mostly you know despite all of its sins uh it's mildly entertaining uh there's there's some stuff that's just stupid as, as fucking hell but it's you know it's it's well it's it's decently made i think zemeckis does a pretty good job at you know visualizing the movie at a certain point he's not an incompetent director for sure uh, it's, it's mostly just like a script level thing where it's just really bad. How many cinema sins would you say this movie has? 25 <laughs> at least. I'm, I'm positive it has 25. Should we count them? Um, no. Uh, uh, no. So here's the Mechas no, thing. Go. Is it largely Back to the Future, yeah. would you say? Is that I, like the I love of lots that? of Zemeckis movies. Uh, if you'll remember, infamously, I've I've called Who Framed Roger Rabbit a masterpiece. That's right. On yeah, this that's podcast him. Before he's worthy of. Uh, love. I I have, I have a deep deep love for Romancing the Stone. It's a very corny movie, uh, but it's a great adventure flick, and and Michael Douglas uh, has great chemistry in, in it, and it's it's just fun. That's I, certainly I the Zemeckis a, I must <laughs> need to see. Um, yeah, I, I like it a lot, and nobody can take that away from me. Um, I'm a big car, fan of Flight. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah Flight's okay. Yeah, I, I liked it when it came out, but I don't know that. Yeah, it wouldn't hold a candle to like. And, and Back to the Future is genuinely, genuinely a great fucking movie and holds up. I love the whole series, and I will definitely urge you to talk about it with me sometime here. I think it's a a very cohesive series too, yeah. a cohesive trilogy. Used cars, you say. Used fine. cars has a lot of charm and lore. It's it's a little amateurish and stretches, but you know Kurt Russell's really good in it, and it's got you know humor to it, uh, and it shows a lot of promise. I think Zemeckis's career again, it's it's very interesting because it's a very clear <laughs> point where he just like loses all interest in telling stories and just yeah. becomes like technically obsessed. Um, it's an effect we see somewhat often. With the with these prestige directors, um, I I think you've seen it happen a few times where someone just gets so obsessed with the technology that they kind of lose sight of the films themselves. Did you see his latest film, by the way? The was it Witches? Is that... yeah, the Witches. No. <laughs> are, are you going to? I don't I know. know. You like I know you like Nicholas Roeg. He did the the first one. I, I'm not very familiar with even Roeg's Witches, so I it's something I've well, seen but I've kind of forgotten. <laughs> Well, I know you saw this one before that, Welcome to Marwin. Yeah, which was, you know, bad, but <laughs> I, I think the idea is good there, at least. I think Marwin's potentially interesting. The documentary about it is very interesting. So there was a story there that's captivating in a way and it has won over audiences. I see why he would make that movie, just not the way he did it. 
Yeah, I'm gonna say the last actually great film he was made. Flight. Cat. Well, I was gonna say Castaway. I think okay. I think Flight is good. Castaway, I think, is 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 great, and I think someday we'll talk about it here. It's definitely the superior uh, Hanks collaboration, mostly because again, you know, you're, you're not you're not having Zemeckis obsessed with like technological showcase. It's an actual like character drama and he's isolated on an island and it's you know i think it's well written and interesting um yeah this this definitely not (laughs) (laughs) once we get back to it castaway may become my favorite but i know back to the future will always be a you know that staple zemeckis who who knows maybe you'll become a romancing the stone stand which i haven't seen and and desperately need to uh I'm gonna I'm gonna pencil that in actually for the near future a romancing Roman the stone, stone podcast because I I would love to talk about romancing the stone unabashedly unabashedly love that movie. We keep trying to get Laura to write the article, but we'll see if that ever comes up. I'm I hope genuinely so. interested. I want to I want to meet all the people who love romancing the stone. <laughs> uh, There's very I'll few of us. Of there are dozens of us. <laughs> hopefully, I'll be number thirteen. Yes, <laughs> but yeah. So thanks for. Uh, I guess thanks for for pushing us to watch Forrest Gump. Well, so I, I think... guess thank you for joining me for this uh, very sarcastic uh, Oscars celebration. Yeah, look, look, not every podcast can be about a great movie. We need to come on here sometimes and knock a few down a pegs. You know, what's our great movie next week uh, that we're watching with Murph? Uh, uh, like we are watching <laughs> the 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 great movie, of course, The Muppet Show, which isn't a movie at all. <laughs> yeah, we're really knocking them out. <laughs> I'm going to be starting that today, and uh, I should probably do daily watches. Yeah, yeah, we got a lot to get into. Uh, I've I've already watched a couple, but uh, there's still so much left. uh, And I I think this is better than trying to talk about any of the movies because the the show is more interesting, I think. Uh, I've found more appeal in the show generally, and we're we're very excited to have Murph on for the first time to talk about the Muppets (laughs) with us. It'll be very exciting. well, thanks so much. Yeah. This went a little long, but very happy with the content. Oh, there's lots to talk about, so it's uh, forgivable, I think. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, as always. Make sure to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually, at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can, and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. 